the rating system would say, we expected you to win the world championship, so you might get a couple points for it, but we're not going to give you a lot more points because that's what you're supposed to do. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. And today we're doing an emergency podcast about the new ranking and rating system. So to start with, I will give a really short history of the new system, why it's coming into existence now, and give a little brief overview of what it's about. So as long as I've been a freestyler, there was a ranking system that was developed by Arthur Coddington. And I actually have since learned that maybe Arthur's system was a variation on an older system that maybe Larry Imperioli did. So for a long, long time, there's been freestyle ranking systems. But when I started, there was one by Arthur Connington. And when he retired from freestyle, he stopped maintaining the ranking system and passed it off to other people. And there's been a lot of great volunteers over the last few years who have kept it going, like Ilka and Kolya. And long story short, we kind of ran out of people to keep it going. It was all on a spreadsheet and it was pretty hard to maintain as the data grew and grew and we're a much more global community now. And so last year, kind of for kicks, correct me if I'm wrong, like Ryan, for fun, you built a ranking system, which was basically a similar concept to what Arthur had built. You just implemented your computer programming skills so we weren't relying on an Excel spreadsheet. And you also built a new rating system, correct? Yep, that's all correct. Yeah, so that was actually kind of a fun Christmas project we had because you were staying with me for a week or two and we would kind of play around. And one quick story about it that I thought was funny is there was this one player whose name I can't even remember who no matter what we did, he was ranked in the top six. And it was someone we'd never heard of. And we were like, like, who is this player? And how are they so good that no matter what we do, they were ranked too high? But we eventually figured out there was a, a problem in the data, which is a subject we'll, we'll come back to a few times in this podcast. So anyways, we had worked or we had worked it out with the FPA that we would run the ranking and rating system alongside the existing FPA system for maybe a year or so. And if we got enough buy-in, the FPA was going to transition from the old ranking system to the ranking system that you developed, Ryan. The idea being that Ryan's new system is much simpler to maintain because anyone could just put in the data and it would automatically spit out the results. There's not a lot of you know data entry like there is with the Excel spreadsheet system. Um, but that plan kind of fell apart because there wasn't anybody to keep up the old ranking system. And so we decided very last minute at the end of the year that we were going to put out what we're now kind of thinking of as like the clocker counter ranking rating system by the end of the year and the FPA could take it if they wanted to like wanted it but if they didn't want it you know they could you know figure something else out but this leads me to one aspect of all this is why do we have a ranking system the most practical answer is we use it to see tournaments so without a ranking system of some sort that can help us figure out how skilled teams are relative to each other we don't have a way to place the teams in the tournament. So whether there's a ethical or moral or whatever problem we might have with you know ranking each other as players, it's very useful to make our tournaments more fair. And that's also why it was important for us to reboot that, even if it was a little bit rushed, which we can come back to. Ryan, anything I've said so far that alarms you? 
Uh, no, that all sounds accurate. Okay. So anyways, what is the new ranking system and what is the new rating system? So like I said before, okay. the new ranking system is basically like the old system. It gives players points based on how they place in tournaments. And the amount of points they get is determined not only by their placement, but it's also determined by how big the tournament is, meaning the number of players that compete in the division. And I should have said before, it's really a division by division situation. So you get points for every division you compete in, not necessarily the whole tournament, which we can come back to or not, depending on whether it's interesting. Um, but you also get bonus points for being in a major tournament like Frisbeer or an EFO or an AFO. And you get even more bonus points for the world championship. And your ranking is based on your top eight results over a two-year period. All that right, Ryan? Yep. There's one catch, which has been very controversial, but I should say right from the outset that this was not Ryan's decision or my decision. This was something that the FPA decided and we you know, wanted to cooperate with the FPA, so we implemented it the way they asked us to. But the COVID years don't count for the ranking system. And the way we did that is 2020, 2021, and all tournaments from the beginning of 2022 to FPAW 2022 do not count for the ranking system. My understanding is that decision was made not in the current FPA administration, but the last FPA administration during the pandemic when there was questions about how we were going to see tournaments like FPAW 2022. And the current board of the FPA decided to respect that decision and keep it going forward. I don't know if it's the best decision. I was kind of acutely aware of it because my partner in mix this year, Zofia, had all of her tournaments during the pandemic. And so she had no ranking points. And I mean, it wasn't really a big deal for us, but it's kind of a big deal, even if it's it's not only kind of unfair to the team that doesn't have the ranking points that they deserve, it creates unfairness in the tournament because Zofia was a much better player than the ranking system was seeding her as. And so there were people presumably in our pool that were happy to face stiffer competition than maybe they should have. I don't know if that actually worked out in Mix because Mix is small enough that kind of everyone is competing. So it's not such a big deal, but that's kind of the potential problem with not including those tournaments. But just to be fair, the, the theory behind it was lots of people couldn't go travel and compete in tournaments during the pandemic. And so the FPA wanted to maintain some kind of fairness by saying, we're not going to reward rankings points to the people who happen to be in places where they can compete. Um, but I think one thing that you've talked to me about, Ryan, and I'm curious what you want to say about it, that's a problem all the time. There's always a lot of unfairness about who is able to compete, whether because of where they're located, like if they're located in Europe, they can compete a lot more than if they're located in Japan. And just, you know, socioeconomic political forces that make it easier for some people to travel than yeah. others. Yeah, the FBA's job is to make the rules. And I think the most important thing is they made a definitive rule and we all just went along with it because I think it made your, like my job and your job a lot easier having that decision made for us. Agreed. And that and was valuable. There's something, there's something nice about kind of separating the decision making a little bit so it doesn't all fall on us, which is often a problem we have. So it's, it's kind of nice that when people, like it's one of the few complaints I've gotten about the new rankings is 
this aspect of it. And it's kind of nice that I can just say, hey, that's what the FPA wanted. So I don't necessarily agree with it. I can think of other ways we could have dealt with it. Like maybe we could have had a four year look back for the time being. So kind of everyone was being rewarded, but, think, but whatever, yeah. like it's a defensible like, system. Like yeah. it's perfectly yeah. reasonable. And yeah, my point one is one other. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. My point was like in this case, it, there, it's like a 50 50 decision. And I think in 50 50s, like the FPA job is just to pick one. That I'm so glad you say that. That's one of my life philosophies that whenever something's close, it doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. like when I, like I think about this when like I hear, you know, someone at my job who's, you know, applying to law school and they're stuck between two schools and they're really close. I just think it doesn't matter if it's close, then just pick one. Like it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. If it's 50 50, then it's not going to really matter either way. Um, there's one other aspect I wanted to mention, though, about this COVID period that could cause some confusion. I just want to address it. It was a little bit tricky to implement the way we all imagined it when the FPA like announced what they wanted to do. Because if we did technically what the FPA said, we would have included three world championships just because of the way the like arbitrary 24-month period worked out. And that, we thought, was a bridge too far. And we did not go past the 2018 world championship. So I think I haven't count the number of months, but it's slightly less than 24 months because we cut out anything before FPAW 2018. So just like in a normal rankings, there are two world championships and then all the tournaments besides the, you know, quote, COVID years. Yep, that all sounds right. So that's the rankings. Done. Very similar to the old system. And in fact, if you look in the archives for the last ranking under the old system, you won't, be dis- you won't be surprised to find that most of the people in the top 10 are still in the top 10. And the reason is because half to most of the tournaments that are now counting in the ranking were already counted under the old system. And the new system was designed to mirror the old system pretty closely. So this was not meant to be a big substantive change to the old system. Um, okay. But we also did something else. And I use we very liberally here. You did all the work. I did do data entry, though, for like I actually was able yeah. to contribute. But at the same time, I created so many problems with my incompetence that I may or may not have created more work for you by trying to help. But in any case, we I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say we because it's easier. We also created a rating system. And this is a new thing. And I have to say that I underestimated how confusing it would be to some people. And I think it's because I'm really familiar with ELO-based systems because I'm a sports fan. And one of my favorite websites, 538, uses ELO systems to assess teams in the NBA and the NFL, et cetera. And I'm also a, a casual, very, very casual, very intermittent chess fan. And chess also uses an ELO system. Um, but we created a rated system that uses what's called an ELO system to assess people's skills relative to each other. And you will probably have to correct me here. So I'm going to kick it off to you in a second. But basically the way the rating system works is every time players compete with each other, they basically put their rating points into a pot. And based on the placement at the tournament, those points are distributed among the players. And if you are a top level player, you have to contribute more points. If you're a lower level player, you contribute less points. So if you are a low-level player and you win, you're going to win a ton of points relative to what you had before. If you are a top-level player and you win, there's less points available for you to win because you're mostly winning back your old points. Why does it work this way? 
What Elo is really good at doing is quickly figuring out how skilled players are relative to each other. So if you are a brand new player and you never competed in a tournament before and you went to FPA Worlds and you won open pairs, you would instantly be ranked in, say, the top 20 or top 10 even because you would win so many points right away because the e the ELO system would see that, hey, this person went to a tournament with the best players in the world and beat them. And so it will rapidly move you up. Whereas the ranking system wouldn't necessarily do that. You would have one tournament result, which would fill up one of your eight slots and you'd be ranked <laughs> like in the top 150. So the ranking system can't really do that as well. So rating system, better at assessing players' skills, better at rewarding players for overperforming expectation. So just to put it another way, like if me and Ryan competed together and we won the world championship, the rating system would say, we expected you to win the world championship, so you might get a couple points for it, but we're not going to give you a lot more points because that's what you're supposed to do. But if Will and Ray, my new Duke Jammers, went to the world championship and won it, the ELO system would say, I cannot believe you won that tournament. Here's a ton of points for it. Last aspect of the rating before Ryan corrects me and explains it better is we have it set up so that it includes all tournaments, including the COVID years, all tournaments, including the COVID years from 2013 to the present that we have data for. So we made the decision because we made the ratings and it's, you know, it's our own thing and we could kind of do whatever we want with it, that we're including the COVID years in it and we're including everything we have up back to 2013. Um, Ryan, did I get that right? Uh, mostly yes. So I'm going to add one clarification. So ELO always works in a head-to-head matchup. And the result is one team wins, the other team wins, or they tie. And so to apply it to the freestyle results, we don't have like head-to-head matchups. So I created head-to-head matchups. So let's say there is a tournament with five teams in it. The team that wins first place beats a head-to-head matchup with all the other teams at the tournament. And that's how I create the head-to-head matchups. And then the same gambling pot analogy works in each of those matches. So like the team that's expected to win puts in more chips into the pot for each head-to-head matchup. And now a short commercial break. It is 2023. And with that, we have a new initiative from the FPA called New Year, New Champion. This is an initiative spearheaded by Katie Gimma, where we are raising money to help a player who has never won any freestyle tournament make it to the world championship. So for all those players out there who would love to go to worlds, but it's just too expensive and too hard to go, this initiative is going to help them get there. So if you're listening, check out the link in the description to New Year and New Champion. You will see some links to donate money for this super awesome cause. I think it's going to be really great to get some new players out there. And there will be an application process in February so that people can apply to get funding to go to Worlds this year. I think this is a really great cause, a really great thing. So again, check out the link in the description and donate to a new year, a new champion. Thank you to the FBA and send us your money. Back to talking about rankings and ratings. You reminded me of another thing, which is that the rating system does kind of like the ranking system reward more points for majors and worlds. And 
it's if you were an ELO purist, it wouldn't necessarily be obvious to you that that was necessary because the players already have more points for being highly skilled players at Worlds. So those are the points that you should be rewarding. But we did create something that rewards you more for winning Worlds and the majors. And I think part of the theory there was that freestyle is a sport with enough variance that the best teams don't always win. But whether the best team wins is more certain at tournaments where everyone is competing to win. So I, I didn't put that in the best way. <laughs> you yeah. can probably explain it better. <laughs> I think the intention was people try harder at certain tournaments. And so we make the system adjust faster at tournaments people are trying harder at. So like Worlds is the tournament everyone has the routine and people are showing their true skill at Worlds based compared to all the other tournaments. And so your ELO changes quicker at Worlds to correct faster to your true skill. Yeah, and maybe the best way to explain the theory behind it is to take an example. So if you and I went to Worlds and we were competing in pairs, we would try very hard and we would have a pretty good chance of winning the tournament. Let's assign a number to it and say we have a 50% chance of winning the World Championship. If you and I drafted each other in the Berlin hat and it was 30 degrees outside and it was random music on a blustery, windy day, our chance of winning is probably more like 20% because we're just hanging out and having fun and no one's taking it that seriously. And so the ELO system kind of needs to account for that given our sport. So like in other sports, the ELO system doesn't have to worry about that because like every basketball game has sort of the same stakes, right? It's mm -hmm. like at least, and they usually do ELO by regular season, not necessarily like through the playoffs or they make a different ELO system for that. So like ELO systems struggle a little bit more when there's different motivations in different tournaments because all ELO cares about is like, did you beat higher skilled players than you? But it can't necessarily figure into the equation that like, oh, but the higher skilled players weren't trying very hard. So when you beat them, it wasn't really worth the same. And yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, we were kind of playing around with it and it, this is like the one like kind of subjective thing about it. Cause one nice thing about rankings and ratings is it's pretty objective. We just say like, here's how many points you get when you win and it spits out the results. And there's not a lot of guesswork on our part. Like if there's any conspiracy theories about us meddling with the system, there's really not much we can do to change where the people end up. It's kind of like what we say about, the judging system, the raw scores are the raw scores. So we can't really change where people's placement are. But we did kind of experiment with like, how did the ratings change based on the value assigned to worlds? And it felt like from our perspective that the ratings looked a lot better when worlds and majors counted for. And I think it is because there's so many random tournaments with like weird formats or weird twists that can distort the ELO system a little bit. And so just like in the ranking system, it makes more sense to put more weight on worlds and majors. And I don't think that's going to be controversial, but that's the only like that's kind of the only like factor or like multiplier that's involved in the rating system. Like otherwise, it's just clean, like how many players are there and how skilled are those players? Yep. OK, before I forget, there's something that's a little bit confusing to a couple people about the ratings that I want to make clear. So we probably too casually call it lifetime ratings because it has not just the two-year look-back period of the rankings, but it looks back at all the tournament data that we have. But the, lifetime, the rating system is always going to be current, which means it's going to reflect the current state of players. 
which is to say if you were the best player in the world in 2012 and you were dominating, you still might be rated last in the world now. Even though your old tournaments are in the system, you will have lost all those points now, assuming you've been competing and haven't been dominated in the same way. So I think there was some confusion where former top players, like I'm thinking of one in particular who wrote me being like, hey, I was winning all these tournaments during these years, but I'm not rated as high as I think I would be. To which I said, basically, like, if we showed you the rating in those years, you would have been rated number one in the world. But it's now 2022, and you've lost most of your rating points. And you're still rated a lot higher than you'd be under the ranking system, but you've lost a lot of the points you gained. So if you were more interested in what someone's kind of lifetime rating was, you'd be better off looking at their peak rating which that shows you how many rating points do they have when they were at their all-time peak as a player. And that's a much better, although still imperfect measure for how people have done over their whole life. And the reason it's still a little bit imperfect is that no matter how we do it, the beginning of the rating system is always going to be a little bit noisy. So when you make a brand new rating system, we don't put anything in ahead of time. All players, as far as the rating system are concerned, are equally skilled. And so we all have the same number of points and it takes a couple years before the points are distributed through the rating system based on skill. So if you were very dominant at the beginning of the rating system, which right now is 2013, 2014 era, you might not have as many points as you would expect based on your wins because you were beating you know, equally skilled players rather than higher skilled players. Is that right, Ryan? Yep, that's correct. And that will kind of fix itself. Like in theory, we'll keep going back as we get more, more data. data for it. But it's always going to be a problem. Like if we get data all the way back to 1970, then the 1970s players are going to be kind of boosted because there's not going to be enough, you know, data yet. Like it just like won't exist. So there's always going to be an initial period where it kind of has to boot up. But it's sort of nice that we're introducing it now and we have data back to 2013 because now it's very robust. So the players that are rated right now, there's a lot of data for them. There's almost a thousand players that are rated and most of them have a pretty significant number of matches, which is kind of like saying they have a lot of tournaments. And so it's a lot more just thorough and and right. Um, Okay, so let's talk about, I don't know, should we talk about kind of limitations of the ranking and rating system? Okay, I want to start with a disclaimer. Okay. Okay, so the first thing is like Arthur, Kolya, Ilka, you and me, we're all volunteering our time. And the limiting factor is how much time we volunteer, right? Yeah. And the whole reason I even built this is because I noticed there was a hole forming where we didn't have people to run the old rankings. And I needed a solution that required less time so we could get more people to volunteer. And I will use this excuse a lot in the, I mean, for everything, where there is a solution to do something better or we could fix this problem that is having, but we just don't have time to do it. And Yeah, I I think about this all the time. It's amazing what we do, I've said this before, with the resources we have in our sport, but sometimes people's expectations are way too high. I mean, it's a sport with a few hundred competitors a year, maybe a thousand over the last 10 years, most of whom don't give any of their time or money or effort into this, which is fine. And so we work with what we have. And you've probably already donated 
hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of your time to doing freestyle stuff, which is incredible. But that's still nowhere near the amount of time that major sports can devote to similar issues. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll add another disclaimer, which is obviously if you rank a thousand of your closest friends and family, <laughs> you're going to have some <laughs> some people who aren't so happy about it. So obviously it's not surprising that some people are going to be disappointed. Some people are going to be happy. Um, again, this is what the data spits out. Like there's not that much we can do to fix it. And you kind of have to look inward a little bit, like go back, listen to our growth mindset podcast, which may or may not be out when this comes out. But if it's not, it'll come out soon. And just play better and remember that this is a competitive system. It's based on your comp- competition results. So you might be the best player in the world, but if you're only getting fourth and fifth at all the tournaments, you're not going to be highly ranked or rated. So that's also like a limitation disclaimer, but just wanted to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. I also want to say, if you do see a problem, send it to us because we'll put it in the list. We just may not have time to fix it right away. Yeah, I sh- we should have said that at the beginning. So I've been, I, I mean, honestly, I've had like three people write me with some mistakes and problems. And I had a couple of conversations with people and I'm telling everyone the same thing. Like if you find a mistake, we know there are mistakes in there. A lot of that's from the data we got, just send it to us and we'll fix it. It might not be until June. And that's really because of a limitation on your programming time. And not only are you doing this and you're off hours from your regular job, but you're also focusing right now on the judging system rather than the ranking system, because we need the judging system by Frisbeer in February. And the, ranking system is good enough for seeding that tournament, in my opinion. Um, so probably by June, all of the problems will be fixed. Right now, I know there's two divisions missing. Anzio mixed from 2022 is missing. That doesn't affect the open rankings, but it does affect the open ratings and the women's rankings. And we're missing Grand Canaria from 2022. Um, we just don't have the data for that, but we'll add it when we get it. And then there's a few names where there were duplicate names that caused problems. And we have a list of those and we'll fix those. It's a little bit harder to fix than you would think. Um, one thing I should make clear because it's important, Maxine Mittenberger, who's currently the number one ranked women's player in the world, she has all the appropriate points that she's supposed to have in her number one slot. But there is a ghost Maxine that's ranked like 18th. That's a duplicate entry. It's meaningless. You can scratch it off in your brain and move everybody up one. But Maxine's point score is correct. And she is deservedly the number one. Um, and if you're wondering why Maxine and Juliana, who didn't compete this year, are still ranked so high, it's because this includes the 2019 Worlds. And they both performed really well at those tournament at that tournament. So that's where all their ranking points are coming from. Okay, other limitations, though. I have a couple, but you go first. No, you... Tell me what you are thinking first. Okay, so I want to start with a problem that's much more prominent in the ranking system, which is that the ranking system relies on people having enough tournaments and people don't. So the way the ranking system has always been is it's the top eight of your tournaments. But there's a big problem, which is that a lot of people don't compete in eight tournaments over a two-year stretch. And so you see a lot of players, even players in the top 20, who only have four, five, six tournaments. And what that means is those players are probably very underranked because if they competed in another tournament and did anything at all, they would only gain more points. Um, So a lot of times the rankings are skewed 
by the mismatch and the number of tournaments that people have had. So if you think of it just like statistics, the larger the sample size, the more accurate the result. So for the players that all have, you know, 15, 20 tournaments, you can count on their ranking being pretty accurate and their point total reflecting their skill. But for players with less than that, which is the vast majority of players that are ranked, a lot of what their ranking is, is determined by whether they have more tournaments than somebody else. Okay. I'll add on to that, that this edition, the 2022 year end rankings, a lot of your points are based on your 2019 results. It's like if you, the people who are at the top of the 2022 ranking list have a strong 2019 year, which might be unintuitive, but that's just how it worked out. Yeah, and I think that's why you see some people you might not expect, like Fabian Dinklage is in the top 10. Fabian Dinklage did not compete very much in the last few years because he has kids and a family and has moved. But in 2019, he was very dominant and got you know second in, I think, pairs and maybe even second in co-op or third in co-op. So he had a really good showing in 2019. That's why he's ranked so high. And he was ranked in the top 10, I think, before in the old ranking system. So that's not surprising. Another aspect, this isn't really a limitation, but I just want to make this clear to people. Um, because it's your top eight, obviously, you might have tournaments that you did really well at that you don't get any points for because the point total from those tournaments isn't worth more than your least valuable tournament. That's a lot of words. Let me use me as an example because it's easy. All of my top eight are wins at relatively big tournaments. I have other wins at smaller tournaments that will not contribute to my ranking because it's only the top eight. So I could go out and compete at a tournament tomorrow, win the tournament. I would not get any ranking points for it because it wouldn't replace my bottom eight result. So if you're wondering why, if this is more like a top player problem, but if you're wondering why a tournament result isn't in there, it might be because its point value wasn't worth more than your least valuable tournament. Okay, I'll add on to that. There is an algorithm that determines how many points a tournament is worth and how they are divided up between all the different places. And the algorithm is very top heavy. So first place gets a lot of points. Second place gets significantly less. And then third place gets significantly less and less and less. So there's a big jump between first and fourth place. So when you're comparing your top uh, tournaments in your list of eight, you can you'll see something like one second place at a smaller tournament is worth more than like a world championship finish that was not even that far behind like a second place at a smaller tournament might be worth more than a sixth place at worlds yeah very true and that i have mixed feelings about like we were talking a little bit about whether there's something we can do to fix that in the future but there's kind of this problem that isn't totally obvious until you start looking at the data which is it's kind of a zero sum game here. So, you know, taking points away from one placement and giving it to another is still taking from one. And if you make the ranking points, if you reward ranking points too dispersely, I don't know if that's really a word, dispersely, evenly. we'll find out. Evenly, it, it, it kind of makes the data a little bit meaningless. So here's a way I've been thinking about it that I don't know if it's helpful or not, but hopefully it makes sense to somebody. There's so few players that compete and are ranked that if everyone who makes the finals at Worlds gets a ton of points, that's like 30 players that make the finals, maybe more than that. 
And if 30 players of the 300, 400 ranked players got a bunch of points, then it's sort of hard to distinguish among them. So it just it happens that there are a few enough ranked players that if they all got points just for making the finals, they wouldn't really be evenly distributed. But there's definitely like an open question of like right now under the ranking system, if you were consistently getting sixth place and someone else was consistently getting eighth place, you would have very similar rankings and ratings, even though one of you is doing way better. Now, the sixth place person would be ranked higher, but the point differential between them would be very, very tiny. Meanwhile, if you were consistently getting first place, you would have way more points than someone who is consistently getting second place. And I don't know, like we, the way it is is mostly the way it was before. Um, but I'm definitely wondering if it makes sense. And maybe we'll play around with it. Maybe we won't. It depends on whether I can convince you to take the time <laughs> to exper- experimentally program. That's like a but. June problem. But now we have ratings, which does is a good metric for comparing tournaments to other tournaments, which the rankings is not right now. Yeah, the, most of the problems with the rankings are solved by the ratings. And there's obviously a natural question of why don't we just switch to the ratings? And I think that's in play. Like Different people have mentioned that, including people who I think of as more conservative and maybe not wanting to move on. I only have one hiccup about switching to the ratings, which is... In some ways, the ratings will move a little bit slower. So if you look like right now, Matt Gothier is rated really high. I think he's like, we'll we'll call these out later, but he's ranked fourth in the world. That makes a lot of sense. I think he's maybe the greatest player of all time, Uh, but he hasn't competed for four or five years and he hasn't lost his points because he went out on top. And again, I think he's appropriately rated. I think if he went to Worlds this year, he would be one of the best players in the world and the rating would reflect that. But there'll be something a little bit awkward if, you know, the top 10 rated players, only like two of them competed. And like, it wouldn't be that helpful for seeding because most of the people that were higher, more highly rated, like weren't even there. And there's also like a presentation aspect of, I want to be able to say if I'm commentating in the world championship, that here's the first and third top ranked players in the world, which will be a little bit hard to do if we use ratings. But that's all kind of theoretical. I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's kind of my one hiccup about it. But I think the short answer and maybe why you made a ranking is and like didn't just make us all go to the rating is people are conservative and they don't like moving to new things and we didn't want to rock the boat too much. They also do different things. Like I mentioned this before, the rankings is what you that's the exciting thing. That's like you give the trophy to the number one ranked player, not the number one rated player at the end of the year. Uh-huh. But why do you think that? Like, what, why are they... And explain why they're kind of doing different things, too. Okay. Now that I'm thinking about why does the ranked feel more prestigious, it's more like you're earning points. It might be just because of how competition in general is structured. Like, you have a season and you're going to these events and you're, like, winning these prizes and whoever has the most prizes at the end of the year is, like, the grand champion. That makes a lot of sense compared to Every time you go to a tournament, your number that represents your skill gets adjusted and at the end. Whoever has the highest skill like that doesn't feel earned in like the same way. Like, Well, let for- me give you an example that maybe explains it. So in golf, there's a ranking system. I don't know how it works. It might be an ELO. It might not be. But there's something that happens in golf regularly, which is someone will be ranked number one in the world, but they'll only have like second, third and fourth place finishes. And the reason they'll be ranked number one is they were consistently getting second, third, and fourth, 
Whereas the people who were winning tournaments were one hit wonders. So random person won this major, random person won this major, but this person was consistently getting second or third. So that would be an example of like ratings would reward you for consistently getting second if you were beating everybody. But the rankings wouldn't really reward you very much. It rewards you for winning. And so there's something a little bit cooler, like you said, about being like, I won all these tournaments this year and I am the number one ranked player in the world. And that's kind of cooler than being like, I didn't win anything this year, but I was so consistently <laughs> good that I was actually the best player. Um, so I'm I'm actually a little bit different than you. And then I actually do think I would care more personally about being rated highly than ranked highly. But I definitely see what you're saying about there being a certain prestige factor to being ranked and make and like us making the effort as a sport to kind of lift up the ranking as our main thing and the rating being kind of this like historic measure mm-hmm. of skill. It probably has to do something with it's much easier to make a story around urine rank rankings than it is about lifetime ratings. Like there's yeah. a natural beginning, middle and end for year end rankings. Yeah. And okay, you actually reminded me of another thing we didn't explain about the rating system. It is it's irrelevant to the ranking system. But when players play with each other, their ratings are basically averaged. If you are wondering what happens when players are playing together because they obviously have different ratings and the ELO system has to figure out what each team's rating is and then it can reward points accordingly. But the reason why I mention this is to be successful under the ranking system or the rating system requires different approaches. So if you wanted to be a highly ranked player, the best thing you could do is find the best partner you can possibly find and win all the tournaments. If you wanted to be a highly rated player, yes, you could pick the best partner and win all the tournaments and you would get some points. But if you wanted to be supercharged in your rating, you would play with players that weren't as good as you and do as well as you could at the tournaments. Because again, the rating system rewards you for overperforming. So if you play with a player who's not nearly as good as you, you are lowering your team rating. And then when you beat higher rated teams, it gives you more points. So this is kind of like the only thing that like me and you can do to get rating points because we have (laughs) so many rating points that winning playing with top players doesn't really give us anything. But we could win a bunch of rating points if we played with newer players. And there's something cool about that. But there's also something like a little bit sad that you kind of have to pick your poison. Do you want to... If, if your goal was to maximize one of these, you would probably have to pick a lane and be like, do I want to win more tournaments and be a high rank player? Or do I want to overperform and be a higher rated player? And you could do both, right? Like obviously, if you were playing with less skilled players and you won everything, then great. You would be the top ranked and top rated. But that's obviously a lot harder to do. I think it's healthy to have multiple paths to victory and just like multiple goals. Well, I think it's nice because it obviously encourages and incentivizes top players to play with less skilled players. Like you get something out of it. It's a little bit, there's like a cost right now to playing with a less skilled player because you're not going to do as well and you're not going to, you're just going to get fifth and that's it. You don't get any points for it. But now you get something else, which is the rating system might be like, wow, actually fifth was a big achievement given your team skill level. And so we're going to give you points for it. So that's like a pretty cool effect of it. Like it definitely makes me think differently about, you know, if I was, you know, a whole nother conversation is whether I'm going to keep competing going forward. But 
you know, if I were competing and my goal was to be like successful, quote unquote, it'd be like, well, what, how do I want to do this? And I would have to think a little bit more thoughtfully and it wouldn't just be, you know, play with Ryan and Pavel and hope for the best. <laughs> you know, it had, I had to be a little more thoughtful about it. Okay. Any other limitations worth mentioning? I guess no, I one think- quick one, which I kind of already said is like freestyle is a high variant sport and that's a little bit of a problem to the system. So like other sports are either have less variance, like usually the better team wins or they deal with variance by doing repeated events. So like in baseball, the best team does not always win. So what does baseball do? Seven game series. You play seven times and they hope that over the course of seven games, the like repeated probabilities will be sufficiently strong that the best team will win. But freestyle doesn't have that. Like there's one world championship there's tons of variants. You just have that one extra drop that drops you from first to fourth. And so you get destroyed in the rating. So we're a, a big kind of winner take all roll the dice kind of sport. And so that can cause distortions in the ratings and rankings for that matter. It's like basically the idea is it it doesn't take much good luck or bad luck to wildly swing your ranking or rating. I agree. We could have a whole segment just on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. But I'll, I'll actually, one other example, which we talked about last year, and we don't have the data anymore because it's like expensive to host the system that figured all this out. But we looked at win percentages among players a year ago. And so that was based on tournaments from 2019 and before. And so the average top player, and I'm talking like top 20 player, won usually around like 20% of the time or like maybe 20 to 40% on a good day. And there's two outliers, me and Arthur. And I won 53% of the time and Arthur won 70% of the time. But the catch with Arthur is he didn't have as many tournaments because like I said, he kind of retired in 2014. And so he only had two years of events. Um, But with that said, like I do think if you went back further, Arthur's win rate would be super, super high. I mean, that's why you drafted him number one. He's like one of the winningest players of all time. But like, I think that's kind of important to point out that like, even if you're one of the best players in the world, winning 50% of the time is like pretty rare. And most people win 20% of the time, even if they're incredible. So most of the time, most top players lose. And so that can create a little bit of noise and variance in the rating and ranking system. Mm Mm-hmm. You remind Um, me of one other thing, one other limitation. Hit me. So like the ranking only looks at your top eight. So what it's looking at is your high watermark. It's like, what are the best things you did and gives you a number for that? Your rating includes all your worst things. So it's kind of like, I think it has a more true, that's why we say it approximates your skill because it includes your failures and your successes. But that's ranking only includes your successes. Yeah, so let's say, let's say I played eight tournaments and I won all of them. Or actually, let me make it even simpler. Let's say I played 25 tournaments and I got first place in every tournament. And you played in 25 tournaments, won eight of them and got last place in all the <laughs> other tournaments. We would have a, about the same ranking because yeah. it would just look at our top eight and it would have no idea that you lost the other 15 odd tournaments, right? The rating doesn't have that problem. The rating would know that I won all the time and you won some of the time. Yep. And it's kind of related to another aspect, which I think is obvious to most people. There's a 
there's no disadvantage to competing a lot for the ranking system. So players who have more tournaments are more likely to have higher rankings. Because if you just think about the variance thing, like if you take more bites at the apple, you're more likely to have more high placements at tournaments. So when I look at the rankings, I try to be sensitive to that. So if I see someone, I, I kind of said this before in a different way, but like if I see someone that's rated fifth, but they have eight tournaments and they're below someone that's rated fourth that has 25 tournaments, probably the person rated fifth is better than the person ranked fourth. They might not be, but like they probably are because they managed to get that many points in eight tournaments, whereas the other person needed 25 tournaments to get the same number of points. Yeah, for so like ranking, that's another yeah. yeah, that's another limitation of the rankings. Not a problem with the ratings. Like the ratings is going to punish the 25 person to the extent they lose a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Also, okay. rating, the order matters. So in ranking, you can play your top eight finishes in whatever order. It doesn't really matter. It'll have the same number of ranking points. But in rating, it makes a difference if you win first, then lose versus lose first, then win. Like to maximize your points, you want to win later at the end because because losses bring you down. So you want to do all your losing at the beginning and all your winning at the end to maximize your ELO. Yeah. Another way to think about that, and sorry, I'm using myself as an example, but it's easy because I'm the extreme and the extreme makes examples clear. So like if I won a tournament tomorrow, I would get like one point for it. And then if afterwards I lost a tournament and I got last place, I would lose like 500 points. On the flip side, if I lost a tournament tomorrow, I would lose 500 points. And then if I won a tournament after that, I might get back 200. So like just from that difference in order was like a net 500 loss or a net 300 loss. Now, there's a little bit of a conceptual bug that we're going to think about for next time about how you deal with tournaments that happen simultaneously, like worlds, like you're going to have multiple worlds results at the same time. And we don't want this ordering thing to like create random, like randomly affect the results. But here's the thing for anyone who's worried about that. It generally is not going to matter very much what the order is if your placements are kind of similar. So like if you got first and then second or second then first, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal if you got first in one and got last in the other. Like it doesn't deal well (laughs) with extreme differences in placement. But like most people don't have those extreme swings. They're kind of in a certain window and they usually place around the same amount. But honestly, like even if we fix the worlds thing to make make some kind of like rule that kind of deals with that, it's there's always gonna be that randomness. Like you compete in a tournament this weekend, you lose, then you compete in a tournament next weekend and you win. That's way better than the opposite. So like that's just kind of the weirdness of the rating system. It kind of goes back to our judging system podcast about when you're dealing with a complex system like reality and you try to boil it down into numbers, lots of weird stuff happens and you can only deal with it in so many different ways. So it's always going to be a little bit imperfect. So that's just, that's just the way it happens. And it would be less of a problem if we were a sport where the best players always won, but that's not, that's not how our sport is. And maybe that's a good thing because there's something kind of cool that, you know, anyone can have a good day and pull out a win. Mm-hmm. It's like any given Sunday. Is that the phrase? I have no idea what that phrase means, to be honest. <laughs> I think it's a football I'm a, thing. I'm a native English speaker. I bet, you know, I'm not, I'm, I haven't watched a lot of football in my life, so maybe that's why I don't know it. Okay, so with that, I thought we could read out the top 10 open rankings, women rankings, and open ratings and talk a little bit about, you know, why the players are rated the way they are and, and what it means. 
So starting with the open rankings, the top 10 are me, number one, with 200. Two, I'm not going to read all the points, but like a bunch of points. Then there's a pretty big drop. Number two, Murdad Hosseinian, Graf Mordi. Then there's another pretty big drop. And then it's you, third. Then there's a smaller drop. And then it's Daniel. And then now the drops are very small. So fourth is Daniel. Fifth is Freddie. Sixth is Pavel. Seven is Edo. Eight is Fabian. Nine is Manu Cesari. And 10 is Francesco Santolin. So how do we make sense of this? Well, one, we talked about how Worlds gets bonus points. So Worlds is the end-all, be-all of the top 10 rankings. So you could count the world titles here and understand why it's rated, ranked the way it is. So I have three first places in one second place over the last two FPAWs. So that's why I'm number one and have lots of points. Murdad has two first places and two second places. That's why he's number two. You have two first places like a fifth place and like a not so high 2019 pairs, I think. So like, that's why you're three. Now people now like Daniel has no first places, but he has like high world scores. So like, if you want to understand the top 10, knowing how people did at worlds is your number one indicator. Your number two indicator is how well they did at Frisbeer. So <laughs> I have all first and second in Frisbeer. Murdad has a bunch of first and seconds. You have a bunch of first and seconds. Daniel, go on down the list. A couple um, noteworthy things. Pavel ranked sixth. He has eight tournaments. Everyone else has a pretty good number more than that. So he has the bare minimum number of tournaments and he's rated sixth. So that tells you that he would be probably a lot... I keep saying rated. I need to be really careful. Ranked. He would be a lot more highly ranked if he had competed in more tournaments. So if if you're on the website and you're looking at the rankings, you can go to the detailed page of the rankings, which shows you their tournament results and how detail many points tab. they got. The detail tab. Um, and so like Pavel has eight tournaments. And honestly, his last three are worth almost no points. So he has all of his points from basically three or four tournaments. So all he needs to do is compete a little more and he would be much higher. Uh, contrast to that, not to pick on him, he's an amazing player, but Freddie, who's ranked fifth, has 27 tournaments, which is basically far more than anyone else, I think, in the rankings. So first of all, kudos to him. That's awesome. Like Support the tournaments, go out there, play more. He makes you a better player. But that means he had a lot more bites at the apple. So probably most of his tournament results here are victories. And he's not being punished for tournaments that he lost because they're all going to be outside of his 27. So like to put it in a different way, Pavel gets punished for his three losses because he doesn't have enough tournaments to push those out of his points. But Freddie is not punished because all of his losses are pushed out by the other 15 tournaments he has. It's like that's the kind of thing that can... Like, I don't want to say skew the rankings, but if you're wondering, like, oh, I thought this player would be higher, check the number of events they are. That might explain why they're where they are. One last thing to point out about this for mine, and then Ryan, if you have anything to add, you can kind of see the different strategies. So, like, not surprisingly, the top three, it's very much about succeeding and winning worlds and Frisbeer. But, like, once you get down even to five, you're looking at a lot more players that are getting 
high results, but not winning results at majors, but then winning lots of other tournaments. So for instance, even though Worlds is so important, if you won eight regular events, not Worlds, not majors, you would probably get about 150 points per event. And I think I did the math at some point, and that would give you like 1,200 points total. And that would put you ranked fourth in the world. So like you could win all non-major slash world events and be ranked in the top five right now. Mm-hmm. I think Manu Chisari is like a good example of that. Like looking at his detailed results. Yeah, so Manu does not have a single... He has one world's result, one world's result in his eighth spot for 55 points. All of his other tournaments are non-majors. He has a Frisbeer. Yeah, he's got one Frisbeer, but he's got a bunch of points from the Italian Freestyle Open, Lazzaroni, Rosetto, Holy Jam, Anzio, Italian Freestyle Open. So like, clearly he's doing really well at these non-major tournaments. But they're also bigger tournaments. Like Holy Jam was a really big tournament just in terms of turnout. So even though it didn't have a bonus for being a major or a Worlds, there was still a lot of points available because of all the players that were there. And so I think he must have gotten second or third and got a lot of points from that. Cool. Um, there was one other thing I was thinking about with this, but I honestly don't remember anymore. But yeah, that's why the players are ranked the way they are. I think it's pretty logical. Um, but I guess... Another thing to point out is like it doesn't take very long to have people that have less than eight tournaments. So Paul Kenny is ranked 11th and he has six tournaments. So he has two open slots with zero points. So if he just showed up at two tournaments and made it to the finals, he would probably move up in the rankings. And this kind of goes to the point of like the rankings start to be pretty noisy once you move down past the top 20 because so many players just don't have enough tournament results to make their ranking kind of accurate, for lack of a better word. Yep. Um, cool. I wish I remember what I was going to say, but I'm just going to move move past it. Okay. Now let's look at the women's rankings. So I don't, I'm almost like loath to let you go off here because I feel like you're not going to be very diplomatic about it. But you wanted to explain something about the problems with the women's ranking. Yeah, it's about the data size. And if you don't have enough data, your output will be more random. And I think that is a problem on the women's side because we just don't have as many women playing. And there's not women and mixed at every tournament even. Yeah, so Renzen, I just said that outside of the top 10 in the rankings, there were some players, really a better way to put it is like in the top 20, 30, 40 of the open rankings, there's maybe like five or 10 players that have less than eight tournaments. In the women's rankings, Emma Kale is ranked sixth with four tournaments. She has half as many tournaments as she has slots. So she is highly underranked because she only has four tournaments. Once you get to the 10, which is Zofia, almost nobody after 10 has eight tournaments. So all of those people could just enter another tournament and they could move up a ton of spots. Yep, that's correct. And that actually brings me to another point, which is, and we do a bad job of this. Like, I'm going to be totally honest about this. Like, obviously, we know better, we understand better, and we are highly ranked players. And highly ranked players are the easiest ones to build the system around because the data is really robust. But it's harder to figure out 
what happens like below the top 100 and things get very wild under there. And one thing I wanted to point out is like, if you just look at their scores, a lot of people that are ranked pretty low, they might only have, I mean, after let's say like 100, all the players have less than 62 points. So 62 points is not very much. Like any one of those players could get a third place result at a random hat tournament and move up 50 slots. So you might look at your ranking and be like, oh my gosh, how am I ranked 250 all of a sudden? But if you just had one other slightly higher result, you might jump up 100 points just because that's all it takes to move up when you're in that dark region of the rankings. Where I think that's really exciting though. It is really because, exciting, but there's the flip yeah. side of it too, which is like you lose <laughs> one tournament and you might drop from 100 to 500. <laughs> yeah, but it's like if you are past the 100 and you want to improve, like one thing we haven't talked about yet, I think we'll probably get to this, but it's like what is the ranking and ratings used for or useful for? And one of the yeah. things is like comparing yourself to yourself. And maybe in 2022, you're ranked... 150 and like your 2023 goal is to be in the top 100 and like that what we're saying is it may be easier than you think because of the eight slots like you just need to play or attend one more tournament to get into the top 100 yeah i mean it's definitely an incentive to compete more because it doesn't take much to get more results and to move up in the ranking and for lower ranked players compete like just the best ability is availability just being there at the tournament is the number one way to get your ranking up. And also, it's probably one of the best ways to improve as a player, just to go to more tournaments, get that experience. But let's come back to that, because I want to talk about kind of our personal relationships with the rankings over time. Um, But let me read off, just so I don't miss it, the top 10 women's players. So number one is Maxine Mittenberger. I'm saying that so poorly. I'm sorry, Maxine. She's a dear friend. Um, Two is Juliana Korver. Three is Ilka Zimon. Four is Bianca Kostelova, five is Benedict Audit. I never, it's like Ade, Audet, Benedict. I know, I know. It's so bad. I'm sorry. Educate me. Six is Emma Kale. Seven is Gloria Alessandrini. Eight is Sharpal. Nine is Fabiana Ciceriello. And 10 is Zofia Wiltsek. Oh, it's just butchered so many of those. I'm so sorry. Um, I call all these people by their first name. So sorry if I get your last <laughs> name wrong. Um, so just kind of to give the explanation again, Maxine and Juliana are ranked one and two because they performed really, really well in 2019. And most of the tournaments are still from 2019. There's only a few 2022 tournaments. Ilka Simon also has performed really well, won multiple world titles or certainly won. And uh, that's why she's three. Bianca is actually interesting. I want to look at her detailed rating rankings. So she has... One FPA title, I think, okay, so Ilka has two, 2019 to 2022 uh, women's pairs. Bianca has one world title and then a bunch of wins at other tournaments. Like it looks like Sand Slash open pairs. That's super impressive. Like she's got 240 points. She must have won 2017 slants. Oh, by the way, this is one of the mistakes though in the system. <laughs> There's one tournament that was dated incorrectly. Somehow, I don't know how it got in there. Um, so there's a 2017 slant sash that shouldn't be there. So that'll get removed next time. And it is bumping BB up. But I'm glad because it's super cool that BB got so many points in 
open pairs. Um, Emma, interestingly, has only two worlds. I mean, she's the one who only has four events. Three are from worlds, but they're almost no points. This is actually even more amazing. So Emma is ranked sixth. Her fourth spot, which is she only has four tournaments, her fourth spot is only one point. So she basically has only three tournaments and is ranked sixth. So some of that is how incredible Emma is. It clearly, when she competes, she dominates. But it's also kind of a condemnation of how little data there is in the uh, women's rankings. But one thing that was really pleasant when I was putting in a lot of this data is every time there was a new player, I had to add them to the system. And by far and away, most of the new players I added were women players. So that's pretty cool that we have more and more women playing. Also, shout out to Zofia and Katie, who are two players who have virtually all of their tournaments from the COVID years that aren't counting. So if they got the tournaments that they competed in during 2020, 21, and the early part of 2022, they would be ranked much higher. Um, but I'm sure they're not worried about it because it's not going to take long for them to skyrocket up the women's rankings. Um, so cool stuff. Just a reminder that women get ranking points from every division they compete in. Um, so they get pair, they get points in open co-op, open pairs, but also women's and and mixed. Any other points about the top ten? Sorry if I, I didn't talk about everybody, but um, you know, making no, the top I think 10 that was good. Pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, let's look at the ratings now. I'm really excited about the ratings. I think it's really cool. So, in the top ten, I, and I'm sorry, I know this is like so self congratulatory, but this is just the way the data worked out. So I'm number one, and then there's a pretty big drop off, and then it's Pavel Baranek number two, Marco Prati number three. Matt Gothier, number four, Ed O'Turi, number five, Tom Leitner, number six, Murdad Hosseinian, number seven, Daniel O'Neill, number eight, Fabio Nizzo, number nine, Ryan Young, number 10. And everyone is pretty close from like two. I guess this is partially just the way the ratings work. Like most people are like, it's a pretty steady like decrease rather than like big jumps. So like really the only big jump is from me to Pavel, but then it's like 20 or 10 point differences. And then a lot of even like five point differences between the players. So like Actually, I'll add some context here. Okay. So yeah, you know more about this than I do. Based on how ELO works, I'm using the same like tunable, like I configured it in the same way chess configures their ELO system. So like yeah. kind of runs in the same scale, like, in chess, 100 ELO is a lot. Like gaining 100 ELO in one year is like an achievement. Like that's like you grew as an athlete if you can gain 100 ELO. So the difference between James and Pavel is 400 points. Like, you, like to conceptualize like how big a gap that is, is it's like whatever you think times that again. Like it's, it's like twice as much as whatever you think it is after you like take into the twice as much <laughs> rule. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to sound horrible by like talking about how amazing it is that I'm just got so many rating points. Like, I'll put it this way, like because you've explained it to me in more detail. I will probably never be able, I will never be able to beat this rating. Like, this is like as good as I can possibly do, barring like playing with new players and somehow still winning. Um, but I don't know. I'd, like, 
I'm very, there's something about it that's like a little bit of a bummer because I pretty much can only go down in terms of like a rating. There's basically, like even if I continued winning at the same pace, which would be really hard to do, I wouldn't really get any more points for it. That is very common. Even the top chess player right now, Magnus Carlsen, said the exact same thing. He was yeah, like, he basically I'm... retired over it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I think it's cool. But another thing that is, I think, also super cool is to look at the peak rating, which I mentioned was like a, a kind of way to see how good, like anyone who's ranked in the top 10 by peak rating was probably one of the top rated players at the time. So like Florian Hess, who is rated number 11 right now, his peak rating is like the sixth highest. So in 2016, when he had his peak rating, not surprisingly, he was probably among the best players in the world at that time. Um, but he's moved down because he hasn't competed as much and has probably not performed as well. Like he hasn't won a world title since 2017. So like that's why he's there. Similarly, yeah, secret functionality. You can click on the column headers on the rankings page to sort them by that column. Yeah, and actually, I think I just remembered the thing that I was going to say before about the rankings that I forgot about. There are times, this is true of a lot of sports, like there are times where the sport is kind of top heavy, where like the same four or five people won everything and they have all the points. And then there are times where there isn't any particular group of people that are dominating and everything is more dispersed. So for instance, like I've talked about this before, I think when I was first ranked number one in the world was 2013. And I had a comically low number of points. And the only reason I was ranked number one is because it was a time when the points were very dispersed. So there wasn't anyone who had won like three of the four or two of the four open titles and the two year periods like nobody had dominated and had all the points. So all I had to do was like do pretty well at Worlds and win a bunch of random tournaments to be number one. When you were number one in the world, it was extremely top heavy. And basically me, you and Pavel had all of the points. And so like when you were ranked number one, you had like 2000 points. When I was ranked number one, I had 1400 points, which is like a huge gap. So I don't know. I don't know exactly why I'm saying this other than to say like that can affect things like peak rating. But that's probably appropriate. Like you might have been the best player in the world in 2016. But if a bunch of other players were performing similarly to you, they would take a bunch of your points and you wouldn't be you would have a lower peak rating. I I wonder if that's true now that I think about it. Like if there are two, let's say, okay, so right now in looking at the ratings, there's you clearly ahead of everyone else. If there was another James Wiseman that was as good as you, I think they would that person would have the same rating and there would be a giant gap. But see, I think I think about it like this, like maybe I won pairs and this other person won co-op. And so they stole from me in pairs or I whatever I mix it up. Like we would be stealing, we would keep stealing each other's points. And so instead of it being me at like um, 1641, maybe we'd both be at like 1550 because we kept taking each other's points back and forth. That's true. But uh, Pavel, who has 1251 now, would probably have less, like 1240. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think what I said I know is true about the rankings. I don't really know if it's true about the ratings. Like there's things about the ratings that I think I'm going to have to like see play out to understand yeah. how it works. We didn't mention this earlier, but the rating number is kind of 
universal. So you can compare like rankings is not universal. So you brought up the example of me being having 2000 ranking points versus you having whatever 1200. Like it's not that doesn't mean I was better than you when I was number one versus when you were number one. Like that's not what it, the rankings are good at, but the ratings are comparable. So if you were to compare your peak rating, so this is really interesting. So like peak rating, you can compare peak ratings to other players between the players, even though they happen at different times, because ELO points are a closed system. So they're, they're kind of all related, like ranking points are not related to each other at all, but rating points are. So you can imagine like points like we think of points and money is like fungible. Like it doesn't matter what point you has, but like you can imagine like there was a point you could name it Fred and Matt Gothier had Fred in 2014. And then Florian Hess won it from him in 2016. And then I won it from Florian. So like there's like a certain continuity to all these points. Like there's kind of, it's not, there's not a fixed number of points which you can get back to, but like there, as long as the community is about the same size, like there's a, just a certain number of points that are available. And so if you had 1,600 points in 2012, that would be similar to having 1,600 points now. Yep, exactly. That Fred analogy is so great. Now I just want to build that into the system. Like in the beginning of time, the Fred point existed and like who has it is like starred in the ratings. You like steal it by beating that. I, I know. And let me just say like if... If my incentive were to keep the highest rating, the best thing I could do is just be like smog and just like hold all my freds and never compete again. And it would take <laughs> a long time for people to steal my points. But don't worry, at least for another year or two, I'll be competing and people can and steal my points. I'm so glad there's a peak rating because I just don't think I'll ever. <laughs> uh, I just can't imagine. Like I, like I said, like this is a high variant sport. It's like, even if you think you're the best player in the world, you're going to lose a lot of times just from good luck and bad luck. And I feel like I've had a lot of good luck. Like, I think if you told me I had to get first, first and second at every major in Worlds for the next three years, I just don't think I could do it. And that's basically what I have now. Um, anyways, also podcast note, I am a little bit sick. and I'm like starting with my voice. So if I sound a little bit raspy. Uh, that's what's going on. Um, okay, a couple other like things I want to point out about the ratings. And they're actually things that I really like about it. So like Fabio Nietzsche is ranked ninth. And I'm like so happy to see something like that because there are people like him who haven't necessarily won. I don't think he's won any world titles. So he doesn't have that like sheen of a world champion, but he's one of the best players. And he's probably getting like second and third at every tournament all the time. And so like big tournaments, he's obviously winning lots of tournaments. And the ratings just does a much better job of being like, look at this guy. He's really good. So I'm like happy to see stuff like that. Like another example of that is like, honestly, Daniel, um, like obviously Daniel's a world champion, but like, if you think about the number of world titles that like most of the people in the top 10 have or top 20 have, like he probably has less than a lot of them, but he's dominated so many events and he's been like recognized for that in the rating system. Actually, the best example of that is probably Ed Oturi. So he has one world title, a recent one, in a much smaller division where he's getting less rating points for it. But he is the fifth rated player. Um, yeah. What about Marco Prati, number three? Marco is such an anomaly because he didn't compete that much over the last few years. 
And like when he was number one player in the world was at the very beginning of the system. In fact, like I think he was number one before me and maybe even before Jake. So like he was number one before the rating system even started. So like he doesn't even get points for his most dominant stretch when he was playing all the time. But I think what we learned from his rating is that every time he competes, he's super dominant. And that's why he's rated so high. And that is kind of a cool thing about it. So like I kind of gave this example earlier, but if you were the best player in the world and you just showed up to one tournament with other top players and you beat all of them, you would instantly get a really great rating, especially if it was at Worlds because of what we described before. It's like, it's really good at that. And I think that's right. Like if you were able to beat the best freestylers in the world at a serious tournament, you should be rated really high. Like we don't need to yep. see it multiple times to know it's self-correcting. That a top player. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool about it. Um, I'm trying to think of any other ones that like I want to mention. Like I do think it's hard to poke that many holes in this list. Like obviously you can quibble about, you know, people being a little bit higher or lower. Again, that's just what the math was. So, you know, you can only complain so much about it. Um, but like this is a list of really incredible players and and it's obviously even more of a list of incredible competitors. So like, even if you, like we talked about this when we were drafting number one players, like I don't necessarily think Marco Prati is better than like Pavel Baranek or Ed Oturi, but man, that guy can compete. So like not only is he, <laughs> he is one of the best players, no question, but he's certainly like among the best competitors I've ever seen. Like I would put him in my top five or top three competitors. He's just a machine. He's so good. Um, so it's cool. It's just cool to see that. Um, and if it wasn't obvious before, say it again. Really, this is a competitive ranking. Like we can't, we can't reward you for being really good but not winning because we there's no math that we can do to fix that. So uh, just to make that clear, like in case anyone was doubting it, it's kind of interesting that you're as low as you are, but at the same time you have a really high peak rating. Um, but it's kind of surprising that you're. 10th i think that makes sense because of the order of my wins like i won a lot at the end of the points run and then i haven't been at the same level that i was during the points run so i should have gone down in rating so it's current i mean honestly i'm thankful because it's already awkward enough which we should have said at the beginning like in a perfect world me and you wouldn't have to do this like we're top competitors we shouldn't have to make the ranking and rating system for top players. There's a huge conflict of interest there, right? <laughs> but the problem is no one else is going to do it. I was super happy when other people did it and I had nothing to do with it. And I could be like, don't blame me. Um, but that, <laughs> it was dead. So <laughs> unfortunately, like we had to take it over. And again, it's just math. Um, all you have to do is look at the details to see like, hey, like look at all the victories. Like, what do you want us to do? Like, we can't take those away. That's how the math works. Um, but I'm glad that we're not like one and two like it would be <laughs> even more awkward. So at least we can be like, hey, look, like you probably went down from the old system <clears throat> and you were the one who actually put in the math. So like, I don't know. All this to say is I had nothing to do with the, like how it actually works. I'm not smart enough like Ryan to figure out the math to give people their their results. OK, cool. So the last thing I remember we were going to talk about is what it meant to us i'm like looking at some some notes we did uh one other thing before we get to what i meant to us i think this is obvious by now make sure you understand this is a new system and like obviously it's related to the old system but by this i mean like everything was built from the ground up 
So if you're wondering why there are still like mistakes or problems that need to be fixed, it's because this isn't, we didn't just take the old spreadsheet and add a couple tournaments to it. We had to add every single tournament from 2013 on. Now the computer helped with a lot of that, obviously, but like this is from the ground up, new infrastructure, new way of doing everything. So it was a ton, a ton, a ton of work and it's going to take a while to work out all the bugs. But like I'd say even with the bugs, this is like 95 to 98% accurate. And the parts that are inaccurate are like very minor discrepancies. Like a few people would move up and down. But like, for instance, the top 10 open rankings almost certainly wouldn't change, right? Yep, that's correct. Okay, cool. So I think this is our last topic, unless I'm missing anything, which is like talk about like what did what did having rankings mean to you as a player? Like how did you use it to motivate you? And I don't know, like what's your relationship with it? Yeah, so in the beginning, there was only rankings. And when I started playing, it was exciting to see my name for one in like a place on the internet. And yeah. it was especially exciting when I would play and I would see the rankings update and I would change and I would I would move up most of the time. And that's so motivating. And I think it is like one of the best people to compare yourself to is yourself. And this gives you a way to do it. And now with the new ratings, like ratings is even a better approximation because ratings is trying to calculate your skill, which is really what you want. And if you're becoming a better player, your rating should go up and you can compare your rating from this season to your rating last season. And those are directly comparable. Yeah. No, I, I remember all the benchmarks, you know, like I remember when I broke into the top 100, I remember when I broke into the top 50, I remember when I broke into the top 10 and then I kind of jumped from 10 to like two or something. So like all those were big milestones. I was super proud to reach those milestones. And I was super proud to just like feel like I was in the company of people that were my heroes. So like when I was ranked number two, I think I was like behind Jake and like next to Matt. And I was like, these are like my two favorite players. And the idea of being ranked among them on like the same tier was just awesome. And like, I don't remember how much I've talked about this before. It was a little bit awkward when I became number one because I felt like the worst number one player ever. And I had like a certain amount of, discomfort with that and it was probably a good thing because it like kind of fueled me like I think some people when they win they get complacent and they're like I won like I did it I'm done whereas I was like I won and everyone doubts me and like I'm going to try and you know keep winning to show that this wasn't a fluke and that was a big motivator for me um but man it's been a good ride and it was really cool that like someone like Arthur like took this upon himself to make it happen I mean it, like I can't imagine the amount of work he did to maintain that old system for so many years and it's such a thankless job um that we're now experiencing the thankless part of it's like <laughs> you're ranking people so like a lot of people are going to be really upset about it but you know he's someone who cared a lot about like the integrity of the sport and making this thing useful and then one thing you kind of touched on but it's really legitimizing for the sport like i think it's really cool that even though we're the small niche sport we can be like hey, check it out. We have this mathematically sophisticated ranking system and we track all the tournaments and we, we you know, know that so-and-so got fifth place in 2012 at this tournament at this place on this date and having that kind of like record keeping and like competitive integrity kind of thing is pretty cool for such a small sport. Yeah. Um, there was another thing that I thought of just now that I wanted to mention. 
I was going to bring up your number one ranked in 2022, which I think is a long time coming. And back in 2018, when we were finishing the points run, the expectation was you were going to be number one and I was going to be number two. Yeah. But and w- that didn't one, happen. <laughs> one throw from one tournament fix, stop that. So one thing that like I find cool, but like it also should be like, a, I don't know if it's a word of warning or just like a point to someone who is like thinking about, you know, becoming a top freestyler. I was number one in 2013. It took me basically 10 years to get back to number one. So you can imagine how long a journey that is, especially for someone who was winning half the time. And I still took me that long to get there. So it kind of doesn't matter how good you think you are. It's a long road. It's really hard to make it to the top of the sport. But I think like a lot of things in life, the longer the road, like the better the outcome, like the better the feeling. So it's like I didn't need to be number one again. Like the fact that I got to like check that off early was really nice to be like, I did it a lot. Of, like my personal idol, Matt Gauthier, was never ranked number one. And I think that's kind of a bummer because to me, he's just the goat. Um but anyways, so yeah, it's a long journey, but we had, we've talked about this a little bit, but and we probably were talking about it more at another time to kind of talk about how we did it. But we pre-planned a points run well before we did it, like years before we started playing pairs together. We talked about doing a points run to play together, have a great routine, win all the tournaments and be ranked number one and number two in the world. And it started out as kind of a, this is a goal, but not an expectation, kind of going back to what I had talked about before, like you can't really expect to achieve something like becoming the number one of the player because you're not the only variable involved. There's other people trying to do it too and trying to stop you and you might not succeed. Um, and so we played together. And if you now know how the rankings work, it's your top eight results. So guess what? Like seven of our top eight results were the same because we played all the tournaments together. But there was one tournament where we didn't play together that <laughs> not only determined which one of us was one and two, it ended up being a four or five year determining factor because the ranking stopped during COVID. And so what happened was in 2018, I was working a a kind of intense job and I wasn't planning to go to the European Freestyle Open, which was happening in Berlin before the FPAW 2018 in Slovakia. But like a week before the tournament, something changed at work and I called Pavel Baranek and I said, hey, if we just buy tickets, and just show up, we can compete in the EFO and maybe have success. And we spent more money than you want to know to buy these last minute tickets to Europe. And we flew out there and it came down to me and Pavel versus you and Jakob. And I I think that for whatever reason, you guys were seated ahead of us, maybe because Pavel didn't have very many tournaments. So Pavel and I played first and you guys played second. And Pavel and I played really well. Um, and... He played only, so well. <laughs> yeah, we, we played well. There was only one hitch, which is when the... T- I, I don't know if time was called. I embellished the story a little bit. Basically, time was called and Pavel yelled out to me, UD, UD, UD. And I hesitated because I knew it was a terrible idea. But I threw a UD. He took it in. He tried to crank it and the disc fell on the ground. And that was that was how our routine ended. And I was like, oh, that was pretty bad there at the end. But otherwise, it was a good routine. And then you guys played and you went dropless and you beat us by 0.2, I think. So you beat us by like less than this margin, half of a bobble. So without question, if I hadn't thrown that UD clock, we would have won. And losing that tournament meant you were number one and I was number two for the next four or five years. (laughs) I know. I remember that moment because 
about Jakob and I were running the turn the worlds the next week. So we're like, we're not going to prepare anything and we have no expectations. And we watched the first six teams go out and we're like, we can take them down. And then you and Papa went out and we looked at each other and we're like, let's just have fun now. And we had no, there was no chance in our brains that we were going to beat you when we went out onto the field. And yet you did. And you know, we need to give more love sometime to Jakob Kostel because he's an awesome person. He's an awesome contributor to the sport. He does a ton for freestyle and Frisbee in general. But he was also such a good player. And I feel like he never quite made it over the hump in terms of tournament results. And so people don't necessarily like know him as much from the new generation. But there's a reason I think he's rated in the top, you know, 20 or so. So he was an awesome, awesome player. And it's really, in retrospect, not that surprising that you guys beat uh, Pavel and I. But it, it was definitely like a funny thing that it didn't work out the way we wanted. But, you know, like now it's kind of one of those things that's sort of cool because I think it would have been a bummer if you had never gotten to be number one just because of like the way the points run worked. Um, obviously, it would have been ideal if we were just tied for number one. But I'm like, I think it's you are really deserving and I'm glad that you got it. And I obviously got to have it again. So like we both got it and we can be happy about that. Yeah, it was a good memory. Yeah. The rankings, you know, they're cool. Like they're not perfect. It's but it's cool. And like it's a fun goal to make, like you said. And if nothing else, we got to seed those tournaments and this is the way we do it. Yep. Awesome. I else? feel like. I feel like there's got to be a couple things that we we missed here, but just one more shout out to if you find mistakes, name changes, want to add more tournament results, just send it to us. We'll we'll add it for sure. Oh, I, I remember the one last thing I wanted to say. So now that you know how the ratings work, it should be understandable to you that as we add more tournaments, like in theory, that could change some of the current ratings. So like if we added 10 more years of tournaments, maybe some people would move up and down based on those new tournament results. I think just like with the rankings, there wouldn't be huge sways at the top because of the way the ratings works, but there would certainly be huge changes in perhaps like the peak rating. Um, we will add tournaments as we get them and as we have time, but we kind of have made this decision that like every year at the end of the year, we're kind of finalizing static rankings and ratings. So it's like at that time, at the end of the year, you were the number one ranked player. You were the number one rated player. That's it. If we add more data two years later that like would have altered the ratings in particular, we're not going to take that away from you. And I know this is funny for me to say because I'm the one who's rated number one right now. But believe me, Ryan, correct me wrong. There's no way you couldn't add any amount of data to take it away from me. But like, there's definitely going to be times where someone's rated number one. But if there was extra tournament data, they might like move up or down. But we're just going to do it like end of the year. That's final. We're going to make a static page on the website. That's like here are the year end rankings. Um, and so as we add more data, that'll be reflected in future ratings. But we're not going to mess with old ratings. Right. That, that's correct. And it will create a certain like history and like simplicity to it. So you can say like this person was the number one rated player at this time. And we don't have to be like, well, like once we add you know, the 1979 Rose Bowl, it's going to change everything. So that's, it won't happen. Um, but it's just interesting to get better and better. So more results, more data, like, you know, please don't silently see that there's a problem. Just let us know. Like, we're happy to fix it. There's no reason we would, you know, not fix a problem or, or add a tournament. So just send it to us. Cool. 
I think that's everything for me. Yeah. I think that's everything. I I feel like I blithered more than usual, which is funny because I can feel my throat just like falling out of my face right now. Um, But hopefully people like it um, and send us your questions. And with that, we will have another podcast coming out soon. Thank you for listening. Check out clockercounter.com. Send us an email at clockercounter at gmail.com. Shout out to all the feedback we got. We got a really nice email from Sasha Scherzinger recently. Um, Paul Kenny sent us stuff. Doug Simon sent us stuff. So we really appreciate it. We take good and bad feedback. Um, We're always trying to learn growth mindset. So with that, we will talk to you next week.